The scripture this morning is from Exodus 5, which can be found on page 48 of your Pew Bible. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people of the form, and the foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen and the people of Israel, when Pharaoh, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us sink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is the word of the Lord. Keep your Bibles open as we look together at Exodus chapter 5. And let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and that you are a God who speaks, a God who has chosen to make yourself known to your people. And so, Lord, we pray that we would see you and hear you today together. We pray that your spirit would be with us 
I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, Lord, and that you would change us as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. November is a big birthday month for the Levering household. We have half of our family, 50%, with birthdays within about one week, and so it gets pretty intense. Uh, And this week on Friday, I decided to try my hand at making my wife a triple chocolate mousse cake. I do not bake very often. There's a reason for that. And I never do so without fear and trembling because it doesn't always work on the first try. Um, Last time I actually tried to help bake something, I think it took two, maybe three attempts to get the thing to work. So, and, and, you know, when a recipe fails on the first try, as is sometimes the case with me, thankfully this week the Lord had mercy, but... But uh, when a recipe fails on the first try, you have to decide what you're going to do. Do I hang up my apron in shame and walk away from baking forever? Do I head to stop and shop and go with the box mix route? Or even better, with the bakery where it's already made? That's my usual MO. There's no shame at all in doing that. Or do I sit back and try and figure out what went wrong and then try it again? Why didn't this work the first time? Did I accidentally use salt instead of sugar? Did I bake it too long or not whisk it long enough? Uh, Did I miss an ingredient? Why didn't this work the first time? Our passage in Exodus this morning tells of the first encounter between Moses and Pharaoh, the first attempt of Moses to persuade Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go, to release them from slavery, that they might serve the Lord, and it does not go at all how he thought it was going to go. In fact, not only does it flop, it backfires in a big way. He basically burns down the kitchen on his first attempt, making the situation far worse For Israel than it had been before he showed up. And so, why didn't this work the first time? What went wrong on his first attempt? Did Moses do something wrong? Did he say something wrong? Did he not follow the recipe correctly? Well, what we're going to see as the story unfolds is not that Moses failed. He followed the recipe. He said what God told him to say. Nor was the recipe flawed. The meeting actually accomplished exactly what God intended it to do. But there is a missing ingredient. There is a missing ingredient, something lacking in Pharaoh and lacking in Israel and in Moses. And revealing that missing ingredient was the real goal of this first encounter with Pharaoh. God sent Moses into Pharaoh's kitchen, not so that he could pull off a perfect meal, but so that all of them, Moses, Pharaoh, and Israel, would learn what the real problem, the the underlying problem in the story of Exodus is. The problem that God is going to spend the rest of the book addressing. None of them truly know the Lord. 
None of them truly know who the Lord is and what he's going to do. And there is no ingredient more essential to life than knowing the Lord. And we see this missing ingredient revealed in three movements in the story. Most of it deals with uh, showing us Pharaoh's ignorance of the Lord in verses 1 through 18. Specifically, his ignorance of the Lord's authority. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord. That's the problem. That's the explicit reason he gives for why he does not uh, comply with Moses' request and instead turns up the heat on Israel. So that's the bulk of it. Then we see, second, Israel's ignorance of the Lord in verses 19 to 21, specifically with respect to his worthiness. Who is the Lord that we should suffer for him like we are? Moses has made them a stink in the sight of Pharaoh, and they're pretty much done with this whole escape plan. So finally then, in verses 22 to 23, we see Moses' ignorance of the Lord, specifically with respect to his faithfulness. Who is the Lord that I should keep serving him? You sent me here in your name, and it's not working. You haven't delivered your people at all. So the, there's no ingredient more essential to life than knowing the Lord. And that's what he's going to show us here. And we'll start with Pharaoh's ignorance in verses 1 to 18. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? The authority of God. Now, a little context if you're just joining us in our series through Exodus. Exodus is telling the story of how God shows his glory by saving his people. The people of Israel have been enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt for four generations. They've been oppressed and tortured and, and afflicted. And God has raised up Moses, his servant, in order to lead them out of that slavery uh, and, and lead them into the land that he promised their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In chapters 3 through 4, we saw how God called and equipped Moses for this task revealing his name to him, that he is the Lord, Yahweh, the I Am, who's going to be with him and who's going to equip him to do this. And then reuniting him with his brother Aaron, who's going to help him speak to Pharaoh, declaring to him that Israel is not just cheap labor. Israel is God's firstborn son, and he will move heaven and earth to save his son, that his son might serve him and not Pharaoh. And so, Moses and Aaron, his brother, are reconnected, and together at the end of chapter 4, they went to the elders of Israel and, and reported what God had said and, and showed them the signs God had given them, and everyone's excited. God is visiting his people, the elders in Israel. They bow down and they worship the Lord, and it looks like salvation has come. And so with the boost in their confidence, Moses and Aaron now in chapter 5 have their first audience with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And this is their request in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, when you look at that first request and you think about the whole big picture here of what God's planning to do, this seems, I don't know, a bit 
thin of an explanation of why he wants them to go. He doesn't say, let us go that we may hightail it out of here and never see your abusive face again. It's not his request. Instead, he asks for permission to go into the wilderness and hold a feast to God, an act of worship, which seems evasive, almost maybe deceptive at first. Is, is Moses chickening out here? Is he, is he cutting a corner on the recipe? Because it would be too hard to follow all of those steps? Or, or, or... But this is actually what God told him to say. This is actually what God told him to say. Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And, and when he reiterates the request in verse 3, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. He's virtually quoting what God told him to say back in chapter 3, verse 18. He is following the recipe. So why would God tell Moses to say this, though? rather than revealing the whole plan. Well, two things to keep in mind. First, Pharaoh has kidnapped God's children. God does not owe him an explanation of what he's about to do. But second, and more important, focusing the request on worship actually gets to the heart of what's at stake more quickly. This is a battle over who rightly deserves Israel's worship. By enslaving Israel, Pharaoh is not only exploiting God's children, he is impersonating God. He is putting himself in God's place and stealing from God the service and worship that he alone deserves. And that also explains Pharaoh's offense at Moses' request. Because if you remember in the ancient world, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was a deity. He saw himself as a god. And so the idea that people wanted to go and hold a feast to a different god, that was offensive to him. What other god has authority to tell me or you what to do? And that is the heart of the problem. That's the heart of the problem in this story, the missing ingredient at why Pharaoh is so offended and why he reacts so harshly, he doesn't know the Lord, Yahweh. Look at his confession in verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. You come into my house talking about this God of the Hebrews, this Yahweh, like I'm supposed to know who he is and do what he says. You've got to be out of your mind. It's like someone walking into your boss's office at work and telling them, hey, there's this guy, Bob, and he says that the whole company gets next week off. What's your boss going to say? Who in the world is Bob and what does he think he's doing telling my company what to do? He doesn't run the show here. That's crazy talk. That's what it's like for Pharaoh having Moses and Aaron showing, him, showing up, telling him, this is what the Lord says. I don't know this God. Why should I obey him? And there it is from his very own lips, the central problem. He doesn't know the Lord. He doesn't understand his authority. 
that he actually has the authority to tell his children what to do and that he actually has the authority to tell Pharaoh what to do. He doesn't understand. He doesn't know the Lord. And that is what God is going to do the rest of the book. He is going to make himself known to Pharaoh. But what happens when we don't know the Lord? When we don't know who he is? One of the results we see right here is a power grab. Pharaoh's ignorance of Yahweh shows itself in a power grab in four public policy moves, each of which are designed to exalt himself over God and to put Israel in their place under him. So the first move, he denies their request. He prohibits Israel from worshiping the Lord. There is no such thing as religious liberty in ancient Egypt. He says in verse 2, I will not let Israel go. You want to go worship? No, you're not allowed to do that here. He denies their request. Again in verse 4, king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Their work, their service, same root word as God's request, let Israel go that they may serve me. No, 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 no. They have a worship and you're taking them away from their proper worship by having this conversation right now and wasting our time, get back to my worship, get back to work. This is a battle over worship. And so he denies their request. There's only one God in Egypt who's worthy of serving, and it's not Yahweh, according to Pharaoh. Second, he distorts their motives. He projects on them a fraudulent motivation. He accuses them of not really wanting to worship God, but simply trying to get out of work. He says in verse 8 that they are idle. They are lazy. That's what this is really about. For they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. And again in verse 17, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. He doesn't believe that they really have any interest in worshiping Yahweh or that they would actually need to travel out into the wilderness to do so. He thinks he knows more than them. So this whole talk of serving Yahweh is just a thinly veiled ploy to get an extended weekend. That's all this is. So he distorts their motives. Third, he disciplines them for their insubordination. He punishes them for wanting to worship Yahweh. Verse 6. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. He punishes them for wanting to serve the Lord. And all of this creates a mess for Israel. They are scattered throughout the land, scrounging for stubble, trying to get enough straw. They're being beaten for not meeting their quota of bricks. In summary, as a result of his ignorance of the Lord, Pharaoh declares himself a substitute deity. 
He puts himself in the place of God. Because he does not know who the Lord is, he doesn't acknowledge his authority, his worthiness, even his existence. And so therefore he runs the country and runs his slave operation as though he himself is God. He declares himself a substitute God. Ignorance of who the Lord is. The God of heaven, the creator God, the covenant God. Ignorance of who the Lord is often results in a power grab. When we do not know the Lord or who he is, we will replace him with something else. We will replace him with something else, often ourselves. And when we replace him with something else, we must demonize all alternatives in order to protect the supremacy of our new God. Deny the practice, distort their motives, discipline in subordination. You will be made to submit to my God. And it's not hard to recognize parallels today, whether at a personal level or even at a public policy level. As we see with the slow erosion of religious liberty in our culture. I do not want to overstate the case. We are blessed to live in a land where we're not afraid when we gather here Sunday morning that we're going to lose our lives. No, but we're not afraid we're going to die if somebody finds out we're a Christian. We have many incredible blessings uh, of, of the right to freely exercise our religion here. And yet we are experiencing what I think is a slow erosion of those liberties particularly as the new religions of secularism and sexual liberty claim authority and then demand that everyone else fall in line to worship these new gods. People of faith, of many different faiths, not just Christianity, many different faiths, are being told by our government what their faith actually requires and doesn't require. What's really worship and what isn't and where they can operate according to that faith, and where they must instead compromise it or leave it at the door. You're free to be pro-life personally, but you are required by law to fund the abortions that your employees would like to have through the health care plan that you will be requiring, or else you will face crushing penalties that put you out of business. That's the law. You are free to uh, believe what you want about human sexuality, But you're not free to apply that belief if your business involves catering or serving weddings or even in a church in Massachusetts when it comes to which bathroom you can use. That's the law of the land. The idea that the God of heaven would have actual authority over us and that his people would actually want to respond to his authority, there is less and less space for that in public policy. Policy that is increasingly comfortable with denying religious practices, you know, in creating a religious test for immigration, for instance. That's one of the policy positions on offer today. Distorting the motives of religious people. Religious liberty is, quote, just a code word for discrimination and bigotry. That's straight out of Washington. And disciplining any insubordination. Punishing those who don't get in line. When we don't know who the Lord is, we will replace him with something else, whether at the level of public policy or at 
the personal level. Not just you know, our, our government's reign, but my personal reign. My aspirations, my family, my finances, my career ambitions, even my ministry ambitions. And we will demonize those who pose a threat. This is what Pharaoh's ignorance of Yahweh produces, a power grab. But the way that Israel responds to his new policies reveals an equally troubling lack of knowledge of God in their lives. Israel, too, is missing the key ingredient. They don't know the Lord either, particularly with respect to his worthiness. So who is the Lord that we should suffer for him? That's their question in verses 19 to 21. Look with me at verse 19. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. How in the world did we go from the end of chapter 4 with all of Israel worshiping the Lord and bowing down that God was finally going to save them to now coming out of this meeting with Pharaoh and calling on God to judge the man he sent to save them? The answer is that Israel, too, lacks a knowledge of the Lord. They don't understand who he is or what he's doing and especially how he plans to do it. When they realize what their release from slavery will cost them, that this is not like a a surgical extraction in the middle of the night before Pharaoh even wakes up and knows they're gone, but they're, they're bound to get to catch some of the shrapnel in this showdown when they realize that, they're not sure that deliverance is really worth it. Which is another way of saying, we're not sure if Yahweh is really worth it. We're not sure if we want to be delivered and serve him if if this is what it's going to cost. If ignorance of the Lord can be a power grab for some, for others, it produces fear and self-protection. I'm not sure I want this cake anymore. I thought following God was going to make my life go better, and now I'm suffering. I thought if I trusted Jesus that, that God was going to answer all of my prayers and protect me from harm, and so, so why is my child now sick? Why did my department get eliminated? Why, why can't we make ends meet? If this is, is, is the cake uh, that comes with trusting God, I would rather live on the scraps of slavery in Israel. They do not really know the Lord. That's Israel's reaction. But but if they could see what God was going to accomplish through this, if they could taste but a, a crumb of his goodness, of his true worthiness, his majesty, and his, the unparalleled satisfaction that comes from knowing him, then they would know what the Apostle Paul came to realize in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed.